our, uh, we're, today we're going to be uh, beginning our second week on critical theory, wokeness, critical race theory, uh, all the different terms that you hear today thrown around uh, left and right in different settings. There's always, there's always a degree of fear and trembling talking about this topic because it's so easy to be misunderstood or to be mischaracterized or to be accused of various different things. And so uh, we definitely need to pray. Uh, Papa Fred, could you open us in prayer? And then we're just going to dive in to an, a whole, whole collection of different issues that are interrelated here. So Papa Fred, pray for us, please. Thank you, Mark. Dear Heavenly Father, we need your help today. Um, we're, we're talking about uh, a subject, uh, social justice versus your justice. Uh, you know, we've call, you've called us to, to do justice, to be just, uh, and yet we can't do that uh, without a heart change. And you promise us in uh, Ezekiel and Jeremiah that you're going to give us a new heart, and you're going to cleanse us, and you're going to put your spirit within us and, and remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And that's the only way we can, we can accomplish this is through you and with you. Um, the other topic, the social justice issue, is, is more of an of a, of a academic pursuit initially, and it seems to have caught hold and, and the folks that are uh, uh, pushing this agenda, advancing this agenda, uh, are certainly uh, have, do not have the Bible in mind, do not have your uh, teaching in mind in Ezekiel and Jeremiah, the fact that we can't do this uh, without a heart change. So help us today, uh, help us with these definitions, help us to... Uh, to make sense of all this, uh, in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So you may remember last week, if I can put, i show a few images here on the screen. Last week I began by mentioning that not too far from where we are right now, uh, at Moore's Ford Bridge was the last, now I want to be clear here, it was the last mass lynching in American history. It was not the last lynching that ever happened in our history, sadly, but it was the last mass lynching with four individuals plus an unborn child involved, and that happened just 15, well, yeah, about 15 minutes or so, 20 minutes from here uh, at Moore's Ford Bridge. We, we want to begin each, well, not every week per se, but we want to begin by, by recognizing things in the past. Uh, here is a very famous image that was circulated starting around 1863 of an African slave. I'm sure you've seen this at some point in your life who was brutally whipped and beaten by John Leon, his plantation uh, white slave owner. Uh, this man escaped from uh, that plantation in Louisiana, and he fled for, I think, 10 days. And this is, by the way, after he had spent two months recovering from this whipping. He, he was sick, and he actually lost consciousness and couldn't remember everything that had happened because of how sick he was as a result. But when he finally was able to escape, he apparently traveled for about 10 days and was, was found uh, in another location and rescued, and they took a picture of his back. And th this is just absolutely horrifying, obviously. Uh, this had a huge influence at the time when it was circulated. This is when photography was starting to have an impact culturally. And so in 1863, right around the Civil War period, th this photograph had a huge impact, as you can imagine, when people saw the horrors of the African slave trade and how uh, slaves were being treated. Let me say as clearly as I can, I want to keep, keep doing something each week. We want to not ignore what has happened in, particularly in our nation's past. We don't want to Photoshop it. We don't want to act like it didn't happen. 
We don't want to act like it wasn't so bad. This is, this is true evil. This is, this, is, this is a sin against the image of God. This is a true wickedness in, in, in our country's past, and uh, we, we do not in any way want to minimize that. But what we, want to, what we want to try to be clear about in these weeks is we can call this a lot of names. My concern is that the names that we label this true evil with are now being used. Those same terms are now being used to label things that are actually not this, but we're still calling them this. Okay, now that, that's my concern. So last Sunday, it had already happened, and you may all have already known about it. I did not know about the Memphis uh, police interaction with uh, the Tyree uh, Nichols that you may have seen. Uh, I didn't even hardly know about it. I was told about it uh, on Monday, and so I kind of researched it this week. We all have looked at it this week. And so I want to spend several minutes talking about that, not because uh, we have some sort of special insight, but because this is happening right now in the news. It's extremely relevant, and it encapsulates almost perfectly the very issue that we are talking about in these weeks. So this, I didn't even know about it last Sunday. At least I knew nothing in detail about it. Um, if you look up uh, online in Memphis, just to name some, just to mention some facts here, um, I, I was told about 65% of the population are African-American, and 58% of the police force of the nearly 2,000 officers are African-American, uh, 37% are white in Memphis, and the police chief is, a, is an African-American woman. Uh, so, 58% of the police force, African-American, the police chief is African-American, the majority of the population in Memphis is African-American, and there was this man, Tyreen, Tyree uh, Nichols, who was, uh, now again, I know there's innocent until proven guilty. There may be information we don't know about at this point that will in some way change how we're viewing this. But up to this point, the police video, which I've seen, and maybe you've seen too, there's one on a street camera, there's one on body cams. It looks really bad. It looks really awful what happens to Tyree Nichols. It seems as though he is being beaten far beyond any kind of justice, and he ends up dying a few days later in the hospital from the beating he received from these five police officers. Now, these are the five police officers that were involved in, in this particular incident. Now, I don't want to be misunderstood in any way in what I'm about to say. There have been abuses by white police officers, there have been abuses by black police officers, but I want, I want you to see the five individuals who were involved in the beating and the death of Tyree Nichols were all African-American, in a majority African-American police force in a majority African-American city with a police chief that's African-American. Now, in my mind, the question is not even a racial question. The question is about other things. We could talk about other things about justice and how things should be carried out, but I'm not even thinking at all. When I first saw the story, I wasn't thinking in racial categories. I was just thinking in terms of what happened was clearly, it appears to me, to have been unjust and what can be done about that. But I want to show you, and I'm, this, I'm going to take several minutes on this, okay? So I'm going to show you tweets, headlines, things that have been said over the last couple of weeks, and you may have seen some of these. And this is where I just started going, what is happening in our culture and how we're interpreting this? So let's just look here. Um, congressman from Florida, doesn't uh, matter what color these police officers are, the murder of Tyree Nichols is anti-black and the result of a system built on white supremacy. I, I saw things like that and I started thinking, what in the world? Where, where are we getting that from in this particular case? Again, we're not denying that white supremacy exists in the world. We're not, we're, not, we're not denying that white supremacy has happened in our past and that there are still people today who are actual, genuine white supremacists. We're not denying that. But the question is, is this particular incident due to white supremacy? Do you see the question? Now, let's keep going here. Another person on Twitter, just as women sometimes carry water for misogyny and the patriarchy, black people have definitely done the same for white supremacy. You're stuck on the faces. I'm looking at the system and why it was created. Now, do you see the system, which is basically the police force you'll see, 
is being credited as being a white supremacist thing and that it was built to protect white people and to exploit minorities and especially African-Americans. And so even if, a, even if five African-American police unjustly beat and end up killing a black man, the argument is this ultimately is due to white supremacy. Do you see the argument? This is, what we're, this, this, this is critical race theory. It, what, what, the, the conclusions that are being reached on these tweets are, are coming from critical race theory or wokeness. Another person, diversifying the police force doesn't end racism because racism is inherent to the organization of, of the institution and its daily operationism, operation. Racism is what policing is. Now again, this is critical race theory. This is what critical race theory does to how you interpret what's going on around you. It, it says that the police force doesn't just uh, maybe have some, some, some bad police who are in it or that there might be some reforms that can make things better. But no, it is from top to bottom, it is fundamentally a white supremacist structure and is, is a version of white supremacy. It doesn't need to be reformed. It doesn't need in any way to be in any way amended. It needs to be abolished or defunded. Yes, sir. <clears throat> Yes, no, I, one of these is a congressman from Florida. Uh, some of these people have major followings on Twitter, and I'm going to show you actually some Christian pastors who are saying, sadly, the same thing. So th this is not just a few random people on Twitter. Th this really is, th this really, and I'll show you some he headlines here as we, as we go forward, but a fair question. You can see here that, that's been retweeted almost 10,000 times. Black Lives Matter made a statement about this incident. Five police officers brutally beat Tyree to death, although the media has spent a great amount of time drawing attention to the fact that the police officers are black, as if that is important, let us be clear. All police represent the interest of capitalism and impel state-sanctioned violence. Anyone who works within a system that perpetuates state-sanctioned violence is complicit in upholding white supremacy. So, so again, critical race theory is a way of looking at particularly our culture and saying at the bottom of every evil is the original sin of white supremacy and whiteness. It, it, it's filtering all that you see in our culture, and no matter who's to blame, no matter what injustice is done by any particular person, at the end of the day, the buck stops with white supremacy. Do you see what I'm getting at here? That, that's, that's the argument. I wanna hear from you guys in just a moment. Now, this is a PCA pastor, Duke Kwan. He has written at least four articles for the Gospel Coalition. Okay, now he doesn't write for them anymore because he's become so controversial. They, they stopped publishing him in 2018. But in 2017 and 18, he wrote four articles for the Gospel Coalition. He's a PCA pastor. He's written a book on reparations, which is really bad. We're going to talk about on a future week. But Duke Kwan is one of the most vocal critical race theory pastors I know of. He is passionate. He thinks Kevin DeYoung is a white supremacist. Just to give you context here for, what this, for where this guy's coming from. This is what Duke Kwan says. Once again, he's Asian, Asian American. Once again, anti-black racism is more than conscious personal prejudice. It describes rather a cultural order that subordinates black humanhood and renders black life inherently criminal, viable, and dispensable. Be not mistaken, Tyree Nichols' murder was enabled by racism. Now, Micah Edmondson, he, he's, he's, he's spoken at the Gospel Coalition, he spoke it together for the Gospel on a panel on MLK in 2018. This, this guy has been a major evangelical voice. He, he hangs out with Russell Moore and guys like that, and you, you'll see his name on Twitter and in other places. But yes, he's spoken at MLK 50 for TGC. He says, quote, uh, say, he's retweeting that same quote, 
that Tyree Nichols' death was enabled by racism. He says, precisely, just because black cops murdered a black man does not mean racism was not involved. So again, at the end of the day, we're dealing with white supremacy. I could, I could keep going all day here. Uh, Jamar Tisby, another w- big v- voice on this issue. He says, how long, O oh Lord, how long until black mothers no longer have to weep for the lives of their children stolen by those charged to serve and protect? How long until our melanated skin is not weaponized against our existence? Now, again, I'm sure this is not isolated incidents. Here's an article for Independent. Uh, written by Nyla Burton, pointing out that the officers involved in Tyree Nichols' death were black is a dangerous distraction. In this article, she says, the police officers who killed Nichols are black, which has prompted many people, particularly online, to attempt to counter the idea that his death is linked with systemic racism. Skip down here. It's about how the entire system encourages all those who join it, no matter their own racial background, to dehumanize and target people of color. She continues, this is a systemic problem that goes beyond the the race or ethnicity identity of the police officers involved in this tragedy. It is shockingly easy in the Leviathan of unjust systems to train people to hate their own, to detain their own unlawfully, to abuse them, and to end their lives. I may not read all this, but this is worth reading some of. If anything, the fact that the officers who beat Nichols were black themselves should prove to us that this fight is even more urgent, that change needs to be even more radical. This is not a problem that can be reformed. See, that can be chipped away with initiatives like diverse hiring practices or racial sensitivity training or body cameras. The law enforcement system in our country is rotten and evil. Defunding the police and prison abolition are the only paths forward that offer any kind of moral clarity, any kind of hope for freedom. Black people have suffered so many indignities and cruelties at the hands of this racist state for centuries. No matter what race the foot soldiers are, the system is irredeemable and must be dismantled. Duke Kwan, Tyree Nichols was 100% lynched. Again, the five officers who beat him were themselves African-American. That's, that's an important point here. Uh, continuing here, another article. This is from uh, Boston, the NPR in Boston, uh, WBUR. Tyree Nichols' death was more than police brutality. That was a lynching, says Reverend Dante Stewart. And it says here, when those in the past put black people on, up on a noose, it was a message to them. This is our estimation of your life and much more. This is our hatred of your life. And when Tyree Nichols was beaten and the just immense uh, disregard to him, it showed us in public once again the estimation of black life, white racism, and white supremacy, and on and on it goes. Now, here's, here's a count. Here's someone tweeting the opposite point. This person says, what if, and he says, stay with me, These five men were actually agents responsible for their own reprehensible actions and not merely hapless puppets being manipulated by the invisible hand of inescapable and omnipotent white supremacy. So, Greg, can I start with you? Just reflections on all, I mean, this, we're going to see this continuously for the next number of years with all kinds of articles like this and stories like this. And as tragic and awful as this story is, the interpretation is the problem, not, not I mean, the, the story itself is, is a problem, but the interpretation is even more problematic with what, what is being said here. It is. Um, I think we mentioned this last time, but I want to mention it again. Um, we have to be aware of the presuppositions that underlie our interpretation of the facts. Um, we all have them. Um, we all presuppose certain things are just true. We don't question them. We just assume them. Um, and when you adopt, when you presuppose white supremacy um, as the, as you said, the root sin, the original sin, then you're going to see it everywhere because it's like you've put on these, these specific type of glasses so that no matter what you look at, that's what you're going to see. It's like, you know, you can get glasses and it's got figurines or whatever drawn on there, you're always going to see that no matter what you look at because it already decides in advance before you look at any evidence, before you look at any facts, before you do any investigation, it already decides in advance what the outcome is going to be. It used to be, and I think we've said this before, it used to be 
Um, if, if something like this happened, well, let's, let's investigate and see if racism was involved. Now it's let's see how racism yep. was involved. You see the difference in yep. that? That's not just a little difference. That's a massive shift. It assumes racist motives in every single thing. And the other thing it does, and I, I don't know if we want to get onto this right now, but I want to draw attention to it. Maybe something to come back to later when we talk about Marxism a little more. Um, you also notice that last, what's that last? Can you put that last uh, quote up there, the last one where the guy was actually pushing back against yes. the narrative? Look, look, look at this again. Um, he says, what if these five men were actually agents responsible for their own reprehensible actions, not merely hapless puppets being manipulated by the invisible hand of inescapable and omnipotent white supremacy? This guy is saying these five individual police officers as individuals made a choice to do what they did. They weren't some puppets of a larger system. And the reason why that matters is when you get into Marxism, you get into cultural Marxism and, and all the stuff that goes along with that critical race theory being a part of that, it assumes that we are all just avatars of whatever system we're a part of. We don't really act independently. We don't act as individual agents making decisions, this, that. We are simply doing what we belong to in the larger system. And so it is... To, to so many people today, they cannot look at these five officers and say, um, you know, they acted against a system that might actually be different and encourage different than the actions they undertook. No, if, if that's how they acted, that must, absolutely must represent the system they're a part of. And that is absolutely, it's ridiculous, it's, it's dishonest, it's not true to the facts, and it is absolutely destructive to, to the police system, to, to um, our whole sense of law and order. Um, because it's saying people can't act as individual, responsible agents on their own. No, 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 you can't do that. None of us can. We're all part of something else. Just right yeah, there on that ahead. point. This is where, the, if you've heard the terminology of identity politics, what this is saying is you as an individual is not what's important. What's important are the identity groups that you belong to. So white or black would be identity groups or male or female or they might say heterosexual or homosexual or Christian or Muslim or whatever. There's these identity groups and whatever group you're in, the group is more important about who you are than who you actually are. And so it's really ironically the opposite of MLK's I have a dream speech where he says we're not to be judged by the color of our skin but by the content of our character. Today we're actually being judged by what identity group we happen to be in. And the, the, the identity group is more important than individual responsibility. Yeah, and so that goes back to, again, uh, it's a Marxist foundation that views people and the world in just completely wrong ways. But this is just like you were saying, and the whole point of this, it's just an example of the, the distortion that critical race theory brings whenever we look at an issue. Like, they, again, they presuppose from the outset that certain things are true before they ever look at the facts. And in fact, what will happen is if you say, well, let's look at the facts, they're saying, well, that itself is a white supremacist thing because you're assuming objectivity. You're assuming um, that there's, this is really true and this is really bad. No, you can't do that. That's an effect of your right, white supremacist, um, ensla your enslavement to that system. So they're doing away. It's, it's all about narrative. It's all about your story. It's all about your perspective 
apart from, you know, let's investigate and see what actually happens. Because even if the facts prove different, no, no, that's just a result of white supremacy. Um, and again, it, it's just a catch-all that they, they can use to label any and everything they don't like as this huge, horrific evil. And when it's labeled a huge, horrific evil, you don't have to, to think through it. You don't have to, to reason. You can just hate it and, and treat it um, like you would um, a Nazi or a KKK member who was doing something evil to another human being. You don't, it's, it's just a, a way to completely dismiss people. If you, if you, oh, go ahead, Papa, sorry. Well, I, I was just going to say, you know, of course, original Marxism uh, you know, talked about conflict. The conflict through revolution, that's the only way you're going to separate the bourgeoisie from the proletariat. And, and, and uh, but, you know, other than the Bolshevik revolution, that didn't really happen like Marx thought it was going to happen in the world. You know, how much of this, though, is honestly fuel? I mean, there used to be a time when, when, when a newspaper was supposed to be responsible in the way they edited, reported, you know, an event. Now, because of social media, we've opened the venue to any Tom, Dick, and Harry that's got a phone and wants to say something. Yeah, yeah, I've heard it said, Fred. Just I heard someone say that the difference. So the difference between what becomes a local news story and what becomes a national news story. So you get the distinction. Well, local news just covers whatever's going on, but the national news is selective because they can only pick so many stories to be on the national news. The difference between a local news story and a national news story today is which local news stories fit this narrative. If the if the local news story fits the CRT narrative, it's going to be on every major, you know news network that's national, and it's going to be talked about for a long time. Any story on a local level that seems to undermine the CRT narrative, seems to go against that narrative, will not get airtime on national news. So, there, there, I mean, I'm not trying to sound like a conspiracy theorist. I know I'm not one of those people, but there is no question that there's a massive bias today, ideologically, when it comes to what is being highlighted and what's being ignored in the national news. And if, if we don't realize that that's affecting us, because we, if we think the news is being given to us objectively, when it is clearly not, it's being driven by a political agenda. If we, if we don't realize that, it's going to influence how we interpret things. Well, some of these tweets were clearly not objective, some of the right. responses. They weren't responsible editing or journalism. So, so real quick, let me mention here, uh, I'm going to show a quick clip from Neil Shimvey. If you know Neil Shinvey, he has been so good on this topic. His website, I think neilshinvey.com or something, has endless resources that's really solid. So there's a book that came out from InterVarsity Press, and I'm not kidding you, this is the actual book title. Can, and it's, it's quoted, white people be saved? So InterVarsity Press is a Christian publishing company, and they put out a book called Can White People Be Saved? And uh, Neil Shinvey is going to read a couple quotes here from this book. And just listen, it's about a minute and a half. This is in the middle of one of his debates on CRT. And again, this is Neil Shinvey. He's really solid on this whole topic. I recommend him highly. There's a book published in 2019 called Can White People Be Saved? Published by InterVarsity Press with a number of Fuller Seminary professors writing there. It says explicitly they draw on cutting edge theory and racial studies and critical theorists who analyze race. Here are some quotes. Here's one from Andrea Smith's essay, Decolonizing Salvation. What we presume to be true of the Bible is primarily the result of the history of European interpretation as translated into European languages. We would have a completely different understanding of the Bible if we read it through indigenous languages. According to the European positivist grammar of truth, 
if proposition P is true, then not P must be false. Indigenous epistemologies, indigenous ways of knowing, are not beholden to such logic systems. Beliefs like Christianity and indigenous religions can coexist in indigenous culture. She's saying, I know that it sounds like Christianity and indigenous religions are contradictory, and they are according to European logic. But if we get rid of that European logic, then they can coexist. Here's an essay called The End of Mission by Andrew Draper. Whiteness is best understood as a religious system of pagan idol worship. It's as idolatry, whiteness must be dealt with like any such cultic system. Its high places must be torn down and its altars laid low. Christian discipleship that entails a deconversion from whiteness is necessary if any true experience of reconciliation with God, others, the creation, and ourselves is to take place. And it's the, the essays are like full well, of... Okay, so you, you get a sense there of the kinds of things. It's exactly what you said, Greg, which is that the idea of certain forms of logic, like the law of non-contradiction, is considered as being a European idea, and therefore it's, it's, it's part of so-called white supremacy or whiteness. Um, so we need to talk about, I think, biblical definitions of some of our terms here. Yeah, absolutely. So, Greg, do. this is a big part of the conversation. Can you kind of start to help lead us through? We, we want to define our terms like justice and these kinds of things with a biblical uh, support. So, Yeah, so what I want to do, I want to give some definitions. So if you got your notebook pen handy, um, this is the time to, to write. And then we're going to look at some uh, Scripture passages to kind of show where we get this and how this works biblically, okay? Because there, there's... At least two terms, three, maybe more, uh, depending on how big you want to go. I've got three right here, okay? We're going to look at justice, righteousness, and equity. All right? Those are big terms, big, big terms, and they matter in the Bible, okay? Um, here's a definition, a very simple definition of justice in Scripture, okay? It's this. It's giving every man his due, in treating him according to his deserts. Giving every man his due in treating him according to his deserts. I get that from Charles Hodge. And when he says his deserts, that's what he deserves. Okay? Um, that's a definition of justice. All right, here's a definition of righteousness. I'm going to give the basic definition and then two applications of that definition. Okay? So righteousness is strict adherence to the law. It's strict adherence to the law, doing what's right. For people, for men, for women, it means conformity to God's law. Okay? Strict adherence to the law. For us, it means conformity to God's law. And for God, it means conformity to Himself. So for us, it's conformity to God's law. For God, it's conformity to Himself. Um, and you can stop writing there if you want for a second. Why, why would we not say, why, or why do we say that way about God? Because there's not a law higher than God. God is the final ending point, the final resting place. He is the standard. So if he's going to conform, it's going to be to who he is. Since the law is a reflection of his character um, for us to follow. So we've got justice, righteousness, um, and then equity. And I get this. It, it, and I, I'd encourage you, that there's an online website for this. You can buy a hard copy but it's the old Webster's Dictionary from 1828. So before our language got corrupted. Um, listen, me. Do what? That's before me. Yeah, it was, just a little bit. You came Pretty soon after, Fred. <laughs> um, but 1828 Webster's Dictionary, I looked it up. Uh, what is equity, okay? And so here it is. In practice, equity 
is the impartial distribution of justice. That's huge. In practice, equity is the impartial distribution of justice. All right, I want to look at some scripture. So if you have your Bibles, please get ready to flip to a few places. And guys, this, these words, especially for justice and righteousness, equity's in there, in there too, uh, scripturally. But justice and righteousness, we have to get these right. Yes. We absolutely have to get these right. And like Mark said last week, like the problem is, is people today are using these terms, but they've gutted them of their original content and put new content in so that they're using the same terminology, but they mean something entirely different. We want to know what they actually mean and how they work. So look at Genesis chapter 18, verse 25. Genesis chapter 18, verse 25. And we know this story when Abraham is interceding for Sodom and Gomorrah because that's where Lot lives. And, you know, he's like, well, God, if you see 50 righteous people, you know, will you spare it? And he's like, well, pardon me, I'll speak again, 45. And he, he works his way down. Look at verse 25. This is what Abraham says to God. And he hits on something vital here. He says, far be it from you to do such a thing, sweep away the righteous with the wicked, so that the righteous fare is the wicked. Far be that from you. Shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just or right? Basically, he's saying God will do what's right. God can't do what's wrong. God will do what is just. Let's look at Deuteronomy. Flip a few books to the right. Deuteronomy chapter 7. We're going to begin reading in verse 9 and we'll read through verse 13. And the definitions I gave you guys, once you kind of get a hold on that and then you understand that that's the definition the biblical authors are working with, a whole lot in Scripture opens up. Deuteronomy chapter 7, beginning in verse 9. It says, Know therefore that the Lord your God is God, the faithful God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love Him and keep His commandments to a thousand generations and repays to their face those who hate Him by destroying them. He will not be slack with one who hates him. He will repay him to his face. You shall therefore be careful to do the commandment and the statutes and the rules that I command you today. And because you listen to these rules and keep and do them, the Lord your God will keep with you the covenant and the steadfast love that he swore to your fathers. He will love you, bless you, and multiply you. He will also bless the fruit of your womb and the fruit of your ground, your grain and your wine and your oil, the increase of your herds and the young of your flock in the land that he swore to your fathers to give you. And we could keep reading on, but again, keep in mind, justice is giving to every man his due in treating him according to what he deserves, righteousness, strict adherence to the law for us, conforming to the law of God. Look at Psalm 58. Psalm 58. We'll look at verse 11. It says, Mankind will say, Surely there is a reward for the righteous. Surely there is a God who judges on earth. And again, meaning if you walk with God in accordance with His Word, accordance with what He's revealed, there's a certain expectation of what will be due you. He's not talking about earning salvation. He's talking about what you... We've talked about rewards and all that kind of stuff. I'm not going to rehash that. 
Um, but it's basically God has said, you know, be faithful to me. You know, if you're faithful in a little, I'll give you much to be over later on down the road. Um, again, treating each one according to his due. Um, look at Psalm 99. Psalm 99, verse 4. And so remember our definition of equity here. It is the impartial distribution of justice, meaning you, without any favoritism, you give to people what they are due. It says this, The king in his might loves justice. You, God, have established equity and you have executed justice and righteousness in Jacob. You see the word justice. You see the word righteousness. They go together all the time in the Old Testament. They're often together. Um, and there's a good reason for that. Look at but, yes, sir. but this equity, though, is not the social justice no. equity. No. And again, remember, we're giving you biblical, biblical. definitions. Right. But I of, wanted to. Right. Yes. Right. This point. is not how social justice people will use this. It's a it's a different definition in their dictionary. Look at Isaiah chapter 33, verse 22. It says, For the Lord is our judge, the Lord is our lawgiver, the Lord is our king, he will save us. So again, all law comes from God. All law and the giving of law ultimately comes from him. And this will play a part, guys, understanding that in what makes some of the critiques against like our police system and our law system so dangerous. So much of the Western conception of law not all of it, but a lot of it is rooted in a right biblical understanding of God as the lawgiver and all that goes along with that. So to overthrow and accuse the system we're in of being patently sinful and needing to be replaced is to say God's law itself needs has a problem and might need to be fixed. Okay, it ultimately goes back there when we get to because we're actually I'm going to bring the book. We're going to quote from the, the one of the seminal texts on critical race theory. Like that's not a stretch to say that's what they're doing. Okay, they actually go there um, in the book. All right, let's look at another. Let's go to the New Testament, Romans chapter one, very famous passage which we have referenced already a lot in this series. Uh, Romans chapter one. Let's look at verse verse thirty two. Again, this is the very last verse of that long section where Paul's talking about the wrath of God being revealed from heaven against all the unrighteousness and ungodliness of men who suppress the truth and unrighteousness. Look at the end of this. This is, pay attention to how Paul words this, okay? This is big for understanding justice, giving to every man his due, treating according to what he deserves, righteousness, being strict adherence to the law, us conforming to the law. Listen to this. Though they knew all these People given over to a debased mind in their sin. Though they know God's righteous decree, that's an important phrase, His righteous decree that what? Those who practice such things deserve to die. That means the right response from God to these actions is death. That's giving to them their due. Okay? Um, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. Look at Romans chapter 2. Let's look at verses 6 
through 11. This gets even clearer in terms of our understanding of what the Bible teaches about justice. Look at verse 6. I mean, we could we could just stop on verse six to get the point. He, God, will render to each one according to his works. That's justice. That's justice. That is justice in the clearest sense. It says to those who by patience and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, he'll give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking, do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. There will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil, the Jew first, also the Greek. But glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good to the Jew first and also to the Greek, for God shows no partiality. And that impartial, that lack of favoritism is so big when it comes to this. You don't judge a case. You don't judge people based on some external or, or, or some just regular natural feature. You base you make your judgments based on external standards that don't change, that uh, help us evaluate facts, help us evaluate evidence by which we can make a right assessment. Let's keep going. Let's look at Romans chapter 12, verse 19. And as we, the more we talk about this, I think this verse will, will become even more powerful in terms of its application. So much of what we hear with critical race theory, it's more like revenge race theory. Okay? It's, it's almost like they, they want revenge. Like they, they are on a, 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 a mission of vengeance. Listen, we know this. Uh, Romans 12, 19 says, Beloved, never avenge yourselves. But leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. Look at verse 20 and see if this is at all the spirit of those in the social justice movement. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Um, and everything we see in terms of the methodology, the attitude, the mindset of those in the social justice, and even when it creeps into the Christian context, they are not seeking to, to do what this says. It's they, they go the opposite way. Let's look at uh, last one, 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 18. 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. Or, yeah, 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, um, not verse, no, verse 8. Not, there is not a verse 18. Um, I'm going to start reading in, I'll start reading in verse 6 just to get the context. It says, since God indeed considers it just, righteous to repay, again, there's, look, listen to the language, with affliction those who afflict you, and to grant relief to you who are afflicted as well as to us, when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, and listen to this, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of His might. Um, and we could <coughs> keep on reading. But again, keep those definitions in mind because that's what the Bible leads us to. Justice is giving every man his due, treating him according to what he deserves, Righteousness is adherence, strict adherence to the law. For us, that's conformity to God's law. And equity is impartial distribution of justice. Um, and again, these, one sec, these are absolutely essential to understand the way we've worded them. Okay? Because social justice twists all of this on its head. 
And it does things that it ought not to do in terms of our understanding of God, our understanding of law, our understanding of justice, our understanding of what's right, our understanding of what impartial is. Um, You cannot escape the clarity of the biblical teaching on this. And it's the saddest thing in the world when Christians who claim to uphold the Bible as God's word start using biblical words with the social justice terminology and they're actually going contrary to everything they say they believe. I was just going to say this is exactly why that being Christian includes us in the oppressor group. Mm -hmm. This is Bodhi's definition, white, male, heterosexual, cisgendered, able-bodied, native-born, and Christian. I mean, you can't read those definitions of the law in fact, law, God is the lawgiver. So th- that's why we're the oppressors. We're simply going to the word to apply uh, God's uh, teaching. Mm-hmm. Let me just mention here, I've got, uh, I think I've got seven copies. So if, if, if you want to come grab one of these after this is over, uh, this is Vody's book. Uh, we've given these out before. Uh, his book is called Fault Lines. It says it's sold over 150,000 copies, which is quite a bit for a book like this. And it's called so- The Social Justice Movement and Evangelicals Looming Catastrophe. And he's, he does a great job in this book telling his own story, uh, growing up in South Central Los Angeles with a single teenage Buddhist mother. And like his co- I think he had two cousins killed in gang violence. And he talks about his upbringing, his conversion in college, and how he bought into a lot of this, what, what became critical race theory. He actually believed early in his Christian life. Like he was actually on that side of it. He actually came to the other side. He kind of woke up to a biblical perspective on this. And he's written a really good book. And after about the halfway point of the book, he basically breaks the critical race theory stuff down and shows how at its most extreme form, it's, it's an alternate belief system. It's an alternate religion. And he just, it has another original sin, white supremacy. It has another kind of conversion, not being born again, but becoming woke. When you, when you, when you become woke, it's like the new birth. And he, he shows how there's another, there's another view of justice, which is actually uh, different from the biblical view. And he shows how there's another view of heaven. And there's another, like, it's a whole other uh, kind of false gospel perspective on, the, yes. on, on Scripture. He does a great job breaking that down. So if, if, if we want to grab one of these as we're, when we're done here, uh, Vody does a great job. And he's got some good interviews online. If you haven't seen those, you can, you can go on YouTube and look up Vody Bauckham on uh, social justice. And he's got a whole host of really helpful interviews uh, on this topic. Can I give a, a couple more? Yeah. Like, I want to get, you don't have to write these down. If you want, I can get you these. Um, but let's, I want to just give a little bit longer definitions of justice in light of what we've talked about and make, a, uh, make one, one definition of justice and a couple more um, statements here, okay? Because this is, this is important. Um, so think about this in light of what we've, what we've looked at. True justice renders to every man according to his works. He's either rewarded or punished for his actions. It should neither condemn the innocent nor clear the guilty nor punish with undue severity. Okay, I mean, you, you hear in that, that's the, the biblical understanding of justice a little more expanded, but you can hear the very echo of that in our law code here in the United States. Um, You don't condemn the innocent, hence why we have innocent until proven guilty. You don't clear the guilty, um, and you don't punish with undue severity, meaning the punishment should fit the crime. Um, You don't put somebody to death for stealing a, you know, a a hubcap or, (laughs) you know, a loaf of bread from the store. Um, it, it's very like God's justice is the very best kind of justice. And that's why our society is based on it. Listen to this. Um, condemnation for wrong. 
Because condemnation, like in our cancel culture, we all know that, like, we're quick to condemn people to, you know, say, you're done, you're canceled, you're, you know, whatever. Condemnation for wrong must be based upon sufficient evidence of actual wrongdoing. You hear it? That's, that's intentional as well. Condemnation for wrong must be based upon sufficient evidence of actual wrongdoing. Just because you have a story of something that happened to you at some point in the past does not give you or me the right to condemn someone in the present based on a past experience and say, well, because you look this way, you're automatically guilty. That's why you have the, yeah. the two or three witnesses principle in Scripture and, and in both Testaments. Like you said. Don't accept, a, an, don't, don't accept an accusation against, say, an elder or something unless mm-hmm. there's two or three witnesses or something. So that, that, that's ensuring that, that yeah. less of these kinds of things end up happening. And in our culture today, this is a huge one. Accusation does not equal guilt. Accusation does not equal guilt. Can I, can I jump yes, in on that? Go for so, it. so and this applies to all kinds of things, whether it's the Me Too movement or whatever it might be. The, the issue is we should take all accusations seriously, right? We, we, mm-hmm. we take them seriously. We investigate when we can. We do whatever we can to look at the evidence and to try to weigh and to see what happened. We don't, we don't discount accusations. We mm-hmm. take them seriously. But if the, the question is, what evidence is there to, to back up what is being said or what evidence is lacking? And so some people would say that uh, an accusation equals guilt, which is, what, which is injustice. That is not just. An accusation does not equal guilt, but an accusation should be dealt with seriously, should be looked into, and then eventually uh, a decision must be made based on what evidence can be presented. Yeah, and we have to be very patient with the process of investigation. Like, it's not going to happen overnight. Sometimes these things can take weeks, they can take months, as folks try to put all the pieces together, investigate everything they can, look at it from every angle. And the problem is we've been taught justice has to be right now immediate. No, the best justice is the justice based on facts and right evidence, because that's true justice. Right. We don't want a mob mentality that just says, well, I'm angry at you, therefore I should be able to do to you whatever I want because I think you've offended me. Let's follow the process. And so much of what we've seen in our country in the last five years, like so much of the uproar, if people would be patient, and again, just saying be patient is a white supremacist thing in their minds. Um, but be patient and let the evidence come out. Let the facts lead us to our conclusions. Um, and again, that's just based on how the Bible talks about justice. But almost every one of these tweets that we've been listening to and reading is accusatory mm-hmm. without sufficient evidence sufficient of what's evidence. being presented. Right. So, so let me just say a word about the gospel here, because the gospel in no way denies God's justice. You'd be thinking, well, if the punishment's got to meet the crime, and God, well, God, God in, in the gospel, there is no injustice. Jesus pays for our crime. The punishment exactly meets the crime because Jesus pays for it, and God is able to give us mercy because of what Christ has done, but in no way is God's justice compromised. So the whole point of the crucifixion is not just simply a moral example or a sentimental thing. The whole point of the cross is that the punishment exactly met the crime. The blood of Christ was sufficient to atone for our sins, so God can clear the guilty, not because He ignores our sin or sweeps it under the rug, but because Christ took it on the cross. So even the gospel itself, there's no ignoring of God's justice. The gospel is God uh, in, in His love, saving people who are, deserve wrath, but at the same time, showing His justice by pouring His wrath out on His Son. So there is no injustice. We get far better than we deserve in the gospel, yeah. but there's no injustice on God's behalf. Any closing thoughts as we uh, come run low on time here? Um, I'll just say in one quick thing in light of what you just said. It's like God actually paid for our sin. Our sin got every bit of justice, every bit of punishment, every bit of wrath that every single sin we've ever committed deserves. 
That's when you think about the magnitude of that on Christ, that should only swell our hearts in admiration and wonder and worship that he didn't just suffer for one person. He suffered for every single person who ever believed, who will ever believe. And he suffered every single drop of justice they deserve for their sin. That's the wonder of the cross. That's good. All right, let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, as we think about uh, a lot that can be confusing going on in our culture, that's being taught in media, taught in schools, taught in colleges, uh, just sent out by social media influencers and all kinds of different places, TV, uh, entertainment, movies, music. Uh, Lord, it can be very difficult to see what is truly right and biblical, true and just, and what is a distortion of those things. So God, I pray that you would give us discernment. I pray we would not be uh, in our attitude self-righteous towards others, but that we would have a broken heart for those who are buying into ideologies that are leading away from the truth of your word, uh, that we would do what we can to speak clearly and humbly and to persuade others of your truth. Uh, God, I pray for those who are in, in any way deceived or taken in by uh, this worldview that we would uh, be able to uh, realize that the truth of your word is actually far better than, than what is being uh, so often uh, said in different outlets. And I pray that we would be discerning as we watch the news, as we go on social media, as we watch uh, entertainment or whatever, that we would have our guard up, that our discernment would be on at all times, and that we would begin to be able to pick out what is true from what is untrue, that we would be able to see when deception or manipulation or a false narrative or a false ideology is influencing the way things are presented. And I pray that we could counteract that with the truth of your gospel and of the opportunity for forgiveness and acceptance that is only available through Christ. So, uh, Lord, I pray as we continue this series that you continue to illuminate uh, th these difficult issues, help us to understand them better, and I pray that you'd be honored in our hearts and in our lives, and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.